I was thinking about, you know, in, in this Christian journey that we're in, we need to be intentional regularly about just letting things pour life into us. We've never lived in a time where there's as much access to great preaching, um, great worship, great opportunities to just let things pour into us, great books, and, uh, you know, you can get them at prices that you can afford, often free, and it is just an amazing ability to allow us to continually get fed and have things poured into us. And it kind of spurred in me this idea that, man, I really just want today to pour some encouragement into you guys. And so that's going to be my goal. Um, now that I'm done shouting at you about water baptism, um, <laughs> I'll take uh, my foot off the gas a little bit, and I just want to pour some encouragement into you guys. I was thinking about this incredible journey that I've been on um, in ministry, our family has been on. And I was thinking about the first time I got really discouraged in ministry. It, it didn't take too long. But, uh, but, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick, pick a point where I, I was genuinely, you know there's times when things don't go right, but there's times when you really feel discouragement. And it was Christmas uh, 2001, I believe, maybe 2002. Um, and we had been at a, a small church, kind of a restart environment, and we were launching a youth ministry. Um, it was my third year of full-time ministry, which means I still wasn't getting paid, which was great. <laughs> we were happy to do it. So I worked full-time uh, during the day and then did ministry full-time all around that, uh, and we were happy to do it. We were on this ministry adventure as a family. We were launching something new, and it was Christmas time. And I had never missed um, Christmas in California yet. And if you haven't experienced Christmas in God's country, I'm sorry. Um, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, you can just go outside because it's nice out on Christmas Eve. You can play football in the street. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just God's country. The birds are singing at 11 o'clock at night, like angels are descending. Um, I'm teasing. <laughs> Everyone's like, I'll fight you. But, uh, but I had never missed it. And so we were really excited to go home uh, uh, on Christmas Eve because, you know, we had some family sent us some money so we could afford to do it. We were really excited to do that. But the Christmas season, if you've never been around a church in Christmas season, which I assume most of you have, there's always a lot of extra things to do. And so for the first time ever, we had launched a, a big Christmas thing in our youth program that we had launched. Uh, you know, we did a giant Christmas dinner. We had tons of kids come. We cooked all the food ourselves, bought it all ourselves, um, did all this uh, decor and give. Then the church had a Christmas program, and I was acting in the Christmas program. I was doing cleanup for the Christmas program, set up for the Christmas. I mean, all the things that you do when there's big things going on. And it got to Christmas uh, Eve, and it was time to fly home that night. And we were tearing everything down, getting the turnaround ready for the weekend. And it was time. If we didn't leave right now, we weren't going to make the plane. And there was a team of people helping turn, tear things down. And I had remembered, I don't think I had ever gone that hard up until this point in my young life. Just, you know, thing to thing to thing to thing to thing to thing so we can get out of town. We were so excited to do it. And I went to some of the folks that were helping tear down. And I was like, hey, we're getting out of town right now. You know, this is as much as we can do or we're going to miss the plane. We love you guys. We'll see you guys, you know, on the other side. I'm all excited. And they looked. I'm like, if you need to go, just go. And I remember my balloon like literally deflating in my soul, just going. <laughs> and I remember it was like you had I'd pushed so hard that that one, it's just amazing little phrase. Oh, if you need to go, just go. Just and something happened in me. I quit ministry that day. The first time I ever quit, right? I've quit a lot of times since then. But, but it was the first time I ever quit. I was done. And I decided that this wasn't worth it. 
that going this hard and giving this much and, you know, working a day job and a night job and a ministry job and all of the things together to try to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Nobody seemed to care. I was done. I got on an airplane, I flew to California, and then I called up my, uh, my mentor and former youth pastor and just said, hey, I want you to be the first to know I quit. <laughs> and he's like, wow, that's awesome. Uh, and I said, yeah. And he goes, so I'm the first to know? He goes, yeah. And I said, okay. And he goes, so you haven't told anybody else that you quit yet? And I go, no. And he goes, okay, that's good. <laughs> and he said, let me just ask you this. Who are you doing it for? Who are you doing it for? Who are you serving God for? Are you doing it for the people and for their appreciation and for their respect? Are you doing it for authority and power? What are you, who are you doing it for? I said, well, this feels like a loaded question. <laughs> We're already clear that I quit, right? Okay, good. All right. I guess I'm doing it for God. Because okay. So if you're doing it for God, do you think God feels that way about what you've done? You think God doesn't appreciate what you've done. And here's what happened. Something clicked for me for the first time. I was young, I was in ministry. I had this, see, at an early age, someone had quoted me something that said, you know, every hidden thing you've done will be shouted from the rooftops and had put like a irrational fear that any sin or behavior that I ever did, everyone was gonna know. I was like paranoid of that side of God's omnipotence, that he saw all of my little heart issues and all of my little flesh issues and that that was all going to get outed someday. I was paranoid of that. But I had never turned the coin and thought, you know what? God actually sees everything. God sees the sacrifice. God sees when you show up and have a good attitude and choose to have a good attitude. God sees when you serve. God sees. It had never occurred to me that God might actually even be appreciative of what I had done. It never even occurred to me that God might be excited, that it had somehow blessed him. It was simply be afraid that he might see all the stuff that you might do someday. It had never occurred to me. Now, I don't know why my mind couldn't grasp that at that point, but something inside of me clicked and said, you know what? That's the only person I really need to please. That's it. And if I could get that piece right. Maybe I could stay in this lane and do something for the kingdom of God that matters. You know, it's funny how often we feel unappreciated. It happens all the time. It happens if in your home. My stay-at-home moms know that feeling. They battle that spirit. It happens in the workplace. It happens, and oftentimes in ministry, it might happen in your home group. It might happen in your relational circle. Time after time after time, we feel unappreciated. And today, I just want to talk with you. I'm gonna, we're going to walk, begin walking through the book of Ephesians. And I just want, if you don't catch anything else, I want you to catch this. God sees what you do, and he loves you. And sometimes I wonder, what is God thinking about when God thinks about me? Right? What does God think about? When God sits down, which I imagine he does, and he looks down at this sphere that he created and these souls that he's breathed the breath of life into. And he thinks about Mike Allison. And he looks down. What does God think about when God thinks about me? 
The scripture says he counts all my hair, so he's got a sense of humor. <laughs> but what does the scripture say? God thinks about when he thinks about you, when he thinks about me. You want to know the quick answer? He loves you. He loves you. You're his child who's fearfully and wonderfully made. That's awesome. So this morning, we're going to start, we're going to jump in a series. Now, some of you have asked um, in the past, you know, hey, do you preach topically? Do you do series? Do you walk through books of the Bible? And my answer is always, yes, we do all those things. And so, uh, so we're going to walk for the next several weeks um, through the book of Ephesians, and uh, I'm really excited to be landing here. Um, we're not going to go verse by verse through every single part um, because... Uh, I'll lose you over the next 31 months that it would take me to do all that. But, but we're going to walk through kind of selected passages and, and jump through and just get really deep in. So if you're a Bible person, open your Bible to the book of Ephesians, and we're going to walk through there. I want to give you some history, some story, what's going on here, because we're about to get to a point of Scripture where the Apostle Paul prays for all of us. This is a letter that circulated to all of the churches that sprung up after him. That includes us. And he's praying for the folks that will hear the message of Jesus and become the body of Jesus. And so I'm really excited to kind of dive into that. As we do, I got to give you a little background because if you have the background, it'll make sense. Uh, and you'll understand about what kind of happened to spur this letter to the Ephesians to happen. And so um, if you look through the scriptures in Acts about chapter 19, Paul actually goes to Ephesus, and in all of his ministry, the greatest revival he ever experiences is in Ephesus. The longest he stays at one church, 24 months, is in Ephesus. So he knows these folks that he's writing to. Um, he knows of them. He knows this culture. He knows this group. While he's there preaching and building a relationship of people, he actually meets a guy, I'm going to butcher his name, his name is Epaphras or Epaphras, I'm not sure how to say it, right? And he meets this guy, Epaphras. Now, Epaphras comes and goes to church with Paul for two years and then leaves and he actually goes back home to his hometown of Laodicea, Laodicea, and then he actually plants three churches, the church at Colossae, so Colossians, uh, the church at Laodicea, and another one that's really hard to say that starts with an H. <laughs> oh, too much fun, right? Um, I'll give it to you here. Hierapolis. There it goes. Colossians 4.13, you can find it there. So Epaphras starts three churches. And as he started these three churches, they've sprung to life. And people are believing. They're getting baptized. They're receiving the Holy Spirit. Converts uh, are just springing up. And the church is growing. They're meeting in homes. They're doing life together. They're building each other up. They're studying uh, the scripture and the stories about Jesus. They are just ignited in their faith. And as that begins to happen, other influential teachers and leaders start coming in and distorting the story. And all throughout the scriptures, you hear about these guys, the Gnostics, and they were this group of kind of religious elite folks that were trying to merge the faith in Jesus with Greek culture. Now, you know, whenever we say, hey, let's just merge whatever's cool in culture with our faith, things often go off the rails. 
It's the same fight for about 2,000 years we've been battling to say, how do we take our faith into culture without taking our culture and doing our faith differently? Does that make sense? So what happens is Epaphras, who is a layperson who's just starting churches and homes, he's getting together. Hey, you guys should hear about Jesus. Cool. Dunking them. Holy Spirit shows up. Now we're a church, right? Then he goes, man, you can hear about Dunking them. Holy Spirit shows up. Now we're a church. It's just happening time and time again. Well, what happens is he's not at all prepared to deal with these teachers who are in these home churches that have sprung up everywhere with basically saying, you can just live the same life you've always lived and add Jesus. So he goes to Paul. Now, Paul at this point's in prison. He's in a Roman prison. Now, he's in prison. Talk about encouragement. He's in prison because he murdered somebody. No. He's in, mur- in prison for tax evasion. No. He's in prison for starting riots. Well, kind of. He's in prison because he won't stop telling people about Jesus. That's it. Now, I don't know if you've ever felt like, God, this just isn't fair. But if you got plucked and thrown into prison for talking about Jesus, how quick before you would need some encouragement? Right? How quick before you would be a person who's calling up saying, uh, Pastor Mike, you're going to need to come visit me and tell me why this is happening because all I did was stand up for Jesus and now I'm in jail. But Epaphras goes to Paul and Paul says, oh, I got this for you guys. And he begins to write these letters of encouragement for the church that sprung up. The first letter he writes is short and abrupt and it just kind of nails it right to the wall because he's frustrated about these false teachers and it's the letter to the Colossians. So when you read Colossians, it's got like a kind of a biting sense. But then he writes Ephesians. And now what's cool about Ephesians is Ephesians is like the letter of letters for Paul. It's the epitome of all the time he's been doing ministry, all the things that have happened to him. He's in jail and he knows that this letter isn't going to go just to one place. It's going to circle around to believers over and over and over again. It's going to get opened in homes in what we would consider small groups. They consider church. It's going to get opened in church and they're going to read this letter and they're going to be encouraged and strengthened and they're going to have their uh, beliefs about Jesus uh, confirmed. He's going to identify all those things. And that's the letter we're about to read in Ephesians. That's the audience who's about to get it. So Epaphras leaves prison with this letter and he goes to share these thoughts with the churches that have sprung up. So Paul opens the letter and I'm not gonna read this part. Um, The first 13 verses, actually verses, I think four through 13 are all just one sentence. So he's writing like, he's kind of like, you ever been around someone who talks too much? And it's just one never-ending sentence and you want to jump in and you can't jump in. You're like, oh, I got a thought there. Nope, (laughs) he's just keeping on going. I said he because, you know. Um, That's Paul in this moment. And so the first like 13, 14 verses, he basically just reminds them how amazing God is. And then he does something. And this is really cool. He prays for them. He prays for the churches that are going to spring up. Because of, Now, a couple things are incredible about this. There's only a few times in all of the scriptures where we see the apostles pray, and we get a chance to hear what they prayed about when they prayed. 
these folks that were close to Jesus, who started the church, who were, I mean, Paul, this is the greatest missionary that ever lived, the greatest ambassador of the gospel that ever lived. And he prays. A couple things to note. One, it's not very long. It's not very long. He doesn't have a big giant run-on prayer. Now he talks in run-on sentences, but he doesn't have a giant long run-on prayer. Some of you just need to hear how important it is that you pray and recognize that you don't have to pray for long, long times in order to be praying. I'm just saying. Then what's really cool is we get a chance to see what's on the heart of someone who's close to being with Jesus, but wants the church to understand just how valuable and important they are. So I'm going to read this for you. Um, I'm going to read it, and then we'll break it out, and we'll break it down a little bit, and then we'll get out of here. It'll be awesome. I'm in Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 15. Can I ask you to do this? I know this is weird. I would love for you to just, I know you have your Bibles in front of you, but you can read with me. Would you close your eyes and let me read this like a prayer, and let me just pray this over all of us as we do this. I'm in Ephesians. If you're not comfortable, don't worry about it, but Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. This is Paul. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. I remember you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Amen. 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 What an incredible prayer. What an encouraging prayer. Paul's writing to folks that are just like you and me. They're messy. They're figuring it out. They're swinging hard and missing from time to time. They don't have all their stuff in order. They're coming out of a culture. What was crazy about the Ephesian culture is they were well off. Ephesus was a wealthy city. The temple of Diana was there. There was a, a, a massive trade. There was waterways that created just wealth that you might not have ever seen. They were very um, spiritual, I'll call it, uh, and superstitious. And as they started getting saved, they were actually, uh, the, the historians will tell us, they were actually bringing their holy books from their faith uh, uh, in this mysticism and 
burning and destroying them so that they could pursue God. They were publicly going uh, public with their faith, even though uh, it was identifying them with Jesus, which people thought was radical and crazy, which he's still radical today and crazy in a good way today. They were doing all of those things. And what Paul wants them to understand is a couple things. First off, because of what they've done, there is an inherent value that they're entitled to that is amazing. I was thinking about this. Oftentimes, I talk with people, and they have questions, and they're looking for answers. And I think to myself, you have those answers. You have those answers. You're asking me because you know I've spent time reading the last will and testament of your blessing. But you have those answers. Sometimes I look at the scriptures and I think about this amazing truth. Not reading your Bible, now I'm gonna harp on you just for a second, is like being entitled to something in a will and not ever looking to see what it is. Someone left you something and you're entitled to it, it's yours. But you never cracked open the will and heard what you were entitled to. There's a, a, a funny story about William Randall Hearst, a famous guy who invested a, a fortune in collecting things. He was a uh, collector. And it says one day he found, um, this is back in the days when you actually had to read catalogs. Uh, he, he, and there wasn't internet to just Google things and eBay them. He said he found a description of some valuable items and he decided that he must own them. So he hired an agent and sent them abroad to find them. After months of searching, the agent reported he had finally found the treasures that William was looking for. They were in his warehouse. He'd been searching frantically for treasures that he already owned. He had read a catalog of his own treasures and not realized it. And that's what it's like when we don't go to the word and we're searching the world for treasures that God's already provided for us. We're searching in the world for peace. We're searching in the world for hope. We're searching in the world for provision. We're searching in the world for identity. We're searching in the world for what God's already provided for you. So Paul prays. He wants us. He wants the church at Ephesus, but he wants us. He wants the churches that spring up because of that to read this and understand the incredible value of what we've been entrusted with and what we've been given. And he wants us to be encouraged by that. Notice he never says physical wealth. I pray that your coffers are full, that you have big houses, that it always rains right over your grass. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't pray that at all. He doesn't pray that at all. He's not interested in those things. This is a man, he's writing from prison, saying, you don't understand the value of what we have. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. So what does Paul pray specifically for us to be encouraged? I'm gonna give you three things and then we're gonna get out of here. First one, verse 17, that we may know him better. That we would know him better. Who's him? Paul? No. He's like, I pray that you know me, Paul, better. No, that's not what he says. Verse 17, let's throw it up there. Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So that you may know him better. He says, what an amazing thing to be encouraged that you can know God. 
You can know him. I want you to think of what a, just an amazing revelation that had to be. For thousands of years, people had a picture of God as if you got in the presence of him, you just disintegrate, right? Like the, 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 the contaminated nature of my flesh would just explode if I got into the presence of God. And suddenly Jesus has bridged the gap that you could know God. That's crazy good news. He always knew you. You could know him and be known. That is so exciting. I don't know if that, this, I gotta tell you what this does to me all the time. This is how I get through really tough things. This is how, when the world doesn't seem to make sense, I can stop and say, wow, this is horrible. Let me go back to what I know. I know God. I know he's love. I know he's in control. I know his plan is perfect. Even when all earth is breaking loose. I'll say that. <laughs> it's online. I know he's still in control. I know he still has a plan. I know he's still trustworthy. Why? Because I know him. Because I woke up this morning and I said, oh, Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I know he loves me with a perfect father's love. I've experienced that love. I know he's trustworthy because I've leaned into him and he's been trustworthy. I know he never calls me out to a place where he doesn't sustain me because I've stepped out into the water and seen him show up. I know, God, you can know him. That's encouraging. I don't know about you, that's really good news. I don't have to just live in terrible fear like, well, I hope he doesn't lightning bolt me today. All right? That's not how I go through my day. I go through my day, hey, if he lightning bolts me, it's the best thing that could happen to me. So bring it on because I know him and I know he wouldn't do that and put me through. You see what I'm saying? That's amazing. That's encouraging. You can know him. You can know what he's like. Paul's experienced crazy suffering and he knows God. He's been rocks thrown at him, shipwrecked, no food, snake bit. I mean, it doesn't even seem like, come on, get serious. And he goes, oh, it's so good to know him. It's so worth it to know him. It's funny, I was thinking about the person I know the most on this planet. She's sitting right here, and I like talking about her because it makes everybody in the room uncomfortable, and then she just stares at me. <laughs> I'm fine with it. But you could tell me a story about Christine, and I would know if that resonates with who she is. He said, hey, we were out with Christine last night and, uh, you know, she kicked over a child and, and, you know, threw some dirt on him as she was walking by. I'd say, you know what? You're full of it. Why? Because I know her. I know what she's like. Now, if you told me she saw a child and she scooped him up and she thought, oh, I want another baby. And she walked over to that person. and That's so great. I just got it on my system. And she held that baby all night long. And then I'd say, yeah, that's probably her. That sounds like a story that I would believe. Why? Because I know her, right? You can know God. Paul prays, you just know him better, that it would resonate with you what he's like and who he is. All right, I'm gonna keep going. I'm gonna run out of time. The second thing he says to encourage us, he wants you to know that you are called. You're called. 
You're part of something. You're called. Verse 18, I pray also, this is such beautiful language. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you and the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now the saints, um, I like this, it says in his holy people, which is more helpful than saints because we hear saints and we think people who have gone on to be with heaven who finished well. Essentially in the scriptures, the saints is just people who trust God, who believe God, got baptized and received the Holy Spirit. That's all I'm saying. Um, He's like, all of you are called. God has a purpose for it. You know what? It's a weird thing. How, how much it exploded when that book, Purpose Driven Life, came out. When, when, whenever someone talks about purpose, something in our souls resonates with this idea that we were designed for a purpose because it's true. Because in our cores, we know it to be true. And when we don't move in it, there's tension and frustration that we feel. And Paul says, I pray that you would be encouraged in this hope that you were called to because there's a place for you and you fit and you're important and you matter to God and he designed you and he has an intent for you and you can't so mess up your life that you've derailed his purposes for your life. You matter to God. That's crazy good news. That's crazy good news. That's exceptional and insanely good news. Doesn't matter what your skill set is, you were designed for God. The early church, they didn't call themselves a church the way we use the word church. They called themselves a group of called out people. What does that mean? It means they were designed and called by God. They all knew intrinsically that Jesus had designed them for a reason, and they were called to that reason. They had something to do. Nobody was a consumer in the early church. They were all contributors. Of course they consumed, but they were all contributors, just a consumer. The last thing he encourages them is that God's power is still at work. Now, I don't know about you, but this is crazy to know that God is still working. Ever just wonder, God, what are you doing? Where are you? What's going on? Paul says, I pray, verse uh, 19, I think. Uh, Verse 19, and the uncomparable great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Here's what's crazy. He prays that we would recognize that the power that was exerted to conquer the grave was still at work in us, in you, in me, in the church. And he prays for the churches that are gonna spring up because they heard the message that they'd never try to do this on their own power. Because if you do it on your own power, it's only gonna be as successful as your own gifting is. The power that we rely on to be the church in a lost and broken world isn't our power. It's his power. So when you feel like, I don't know what to do, I don't have the power, good. You have access to the power that's better, right? Batteries wear out, so plug in. Things that are plugged in, they don't wear out. Okay, maybe they wear out. Don't follow my analogy all the way around. 
You have access to the power source. That's awesome. That hasn't ended. It wasn't turned off for them. It's not turned off for us. Paul says, I want you to be encouraged. You have access to the power source. So here's how we're gonna wrap things up today. I'm gonna have um, the elders come. In just a moment, I'm gonna pass out communion and we're gonna take communion today. And I just wanna press into this power component a little bit for a moment. I was thinking about when did we lose the wonder that God could do anything? Remember when you used to believe that God can do anything? Like you believed it intrinsically. You believed that he could just flood the whole earth, save a group of people and start over. And he was like, cool, you got it, right? You believe that he could just raise people from the dead, heal people. You believe that the lame would walk. You believed all those things. And somewhere along the line, you compartmentalize those beliefs to, well, that's them, but this is now. Or that could happen, but probably won't. I, I don't know what happens, but somehow we just, we just lost the wonder of an all-powerful God that could meet needs. What happened to us to get so jaded? Paul says, don't ever do that. Don't forget that power that conquered the grave is deposited in you. It's not deposited in me. Well, it is, but not just in me, but it's deposited in you. When you repented, when you believed, when you trusted in Jesus, when you invited him into your heart, when you took the plunge, took your faith public, that power is evident in you. When you receive the spirit of God, that power is there. That's amazing. Let's not lose sight of that. So who needs to hear this today? Am I just talking to myself? I don't know. Sometimes the world looks upside down. I was even just thinking like, I mean, you can't turn on the news anymore and just, I don't know if I'm just getting older and the news has always been like this and I just ignored it, but I get, I turn on the news and I get angry. I'm just like, how in the world is God going to deal with this? Seriously, God, am I going to have to choose between things I don't want to choose between? Like, come on, Lord. Like, how is this going to work? How is this going to possibly work? And then I think, okay, can you imagine if you had to watch the government kill the savior of the earth, how you might feel about whether or not God's in control? Yet even witnessing that, come on now, his power was on display. The grave got conquered on the other side of what seemed hopeless. God was in control the whole time. Can we remember that God's in control today? Can we be encouraged that even though what we see doesn't seem to make sense, that he's still the same God who conquered the grave, who overthrew and toppled cultures and government through radical love and self-sacrifice, that those principles are still at work in the church today, that we're still agents of that kind of change? Can we not let ourselves get jaded and get to a place where we think, oh, this isn't even gonna be worth it. Can we remember 12 dudes who 11 that were left radically believed, took it public and said, it can be better than this because of what God has done. 
in a culture that was wicked and lost and broken and corrupt and all of those things was radically transformed. Why? Because people decided they were going to know God. People decided they were going to be who he designed them to be. People decided they were going to trust that he had the power to do it. That's the change that happens. That's where our hope is. That's what Paul was praying we wouldn't lose. That's why he wrote the letter. He knew discouragement was going to creep in. He knew other voices were going to creep in. He knew other thoughts and, and, and strategies were going to win the day. He knew all those things were at risk. And he said, stop. Remember who God is. Remember who you are. And remember what God can do. If you do that, you can change the world. Let's change the world. I'm in. I got one shot. Right? It's like stepping up to the tee on the longest drive. Where's my sports guys, right? Am I going to play it safe? Yeah, right. I'm going to swing hard. Who knows what could happen? Who knows? But what I do know is who God is. I know how much he loves each and every one of you. And I know that power is still alive today. So here's what's going to happen. Uh, in just a moment, these, these guys are going to pass out for you the elements. I'm going to ask you to just hold on to those things. And uh, we're going to worship together. And then the scripture tells us that this is something we do when we remember Jesus. And I'm going to challenge us to just remember. We get to know God. We get to be who God designed us to be. And we get to experience his power. Nothing is impossible, the scriptures say, for him who believes. So God, I pray you take these uh, elements in this moment of worship and you'd stir in our heart the kind of hope that only comes when we know the truth of who you are and what you've done for us. So we put our faith and our hope and our trust in you. And we love you. In Jesus' name, would you worship as they pass this out?